Welcome to Women in the Arena podcast, the podcast celebrating women doing extraordinary things in plain sight. I'm your host, Audra Egan, and our mission is to elevate the value, strength, and resilience each woman brings to the world. Without further delay, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome to Season 5 of Women in the Arena podcast, where our community is the best, period. If you are new to our community, first of all, welcome, and let me introduce myself. I'm Audra, your host, and I want to change the world. And I want to change the world one woman at a time. And I'm going to do that by celebrating them doing extraordinary things in plain sight. And I have just gotten started. I am of no shortage of interviewing amazing, fabulous women all over the world. So I've got lots of work to do. So I better go ahead and start the show. Don't wait for Welcome in, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me again this week. I have told you for a really long time that I firmly believe that one person can change the world. And today, I am joined by one person who is working to change the world. I'm joined by Sharia Burnett, and she is an amazing, remarkable, and diverse individual. She is a tribal citizen. She is a Juris Doctorate from Elon University, and she works to help those that most of us don't see. She works to make sure that people have homes, food on the table, and clothes on their bodies. It is both my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you Saria Burnett. Saria, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Audra. Well, thank you for being here. You and I have so much to talk about. I mean, there's, you are quite, you are quite the woman. I mean, we just, in my intro, I just barely scratched the surface of what you do. I don't know how you sleep or if you sleep because you are extremely busy. The first thing that I want to ask you about is that when I read your biography, something that jumped out at me was that you are a, tribal citizen. And that really, that really intrigued me. So what does that mean that you're a tribal citizen? Okay, so it's a lot like being an American citizen. So in the United States of America, we have different sets of tribes. So we have tribes that are federally recognized. So in the state of North Carolina, our only federally recognized tribe is the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. Um, Normally, you can tell uh, federally recognized tribes because those are the ones that you hear of getting money from the government or being able to operate things like casinos. So out West, you have a lot more federally recognized tribes. Um, Then with their state recognized tribes. And so the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation is a state recognized tribe in North Carolina. There are seven tribes total that are state recognized here. Um, And we essentially have some of the the highest numbers as it pertains to numbers of tribes in North Carolina, um, this side of the Mississippi River. 
Additionally, there are tribes that are not recognized, but are possibly like going through the recognition process. And essentially, whether you're federally recognized, state recognized or not recognized, what it is, is about the documentation and evidence that you've provided to the federal government to get recognition. So historically, what that means for the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation is that you are related, a direct descendant of someone who would have been eligible for tribal citizenship. Our tribe didn't get citizenship until the 80s. Um, And so therefore, historically, a lot of people that would have been eligible were deceased by the time the tribe got recognition. My great-great-grandfather was full-blooded Okanichi. Burnett is actually one of the core tribal last names of the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation. So um, in 2016, I did the research and provided the documentation to show that my great-great-grandfather and his descendants, which would be my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father, were all eligible for citizenship. And therefore, that made me eligible for citizenship. And I received my tribal card. So what that means is that I'm on the tribal rolls for the tribe. I'm a voting member of the tribe. I can run for office within the tribe. Um, And then there are certain other benefits that come with it in terms of just what that looks like in tribal spaces. So sometimes that looks like attending events with the other state recognized tribes. And in order to be present or to be invited, you must be a recognized tribal citizen. Um, Federally, because we're not federally recognized, we don't really receive the same recognition. But I will say that our governor here, Roy Cooper, does make it a point to have American Indian based celebrations and to invite all of the tribes from the state. So um, the Okanichi are frequently recognized in things with with the governor. That's amazing. And that makes so much sense based on what you've done as far as what your heritage is to what you do as uh, for a living is that you went through the work. I'm sure that it was hard work. I'm sure that it wasn't easy to be recognized, but you went through the work to be seen and recognized as who you are, which is what you do professionally. Uh, You work to see those that are unseen and recognize those that most people ignore or don't mm-hmm. see at all. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do specifically for uh, for helping those that are unseen. And then we're also going to talk about n- the work that you do for the words that are unheard. So we're going to get to that in a minute, but let's let's talk about the the people that you work to see. Okay, so it's interesting that you tie this back to my heritage. So I say that I am um, a social worker and that is hereditary. Um, My great grandfather, who was also part Okanichi, started a township. So he moved from his hometown in our county to the southern part of our county, started a township, started a church. In that church, he also used the church as a school for children. And he also used it as a place where women and men could learn different things. For men, he in particular taught them different trades like wallet making, basket weaving that would help them to support their families financially. And so his idea was more so using the church and the township to create self-sufficiency. So I tell people that he was the original social worker in the family and I'm just continuing his legacy. So with that in mind, I think that the work that I do primarily is social work in that we are working with society and we are working to address society's issues, the way in which we do it is just a little different. So I work for a domestic violence agency. 
this particular agency was awarded quite a bit of money for COVID funding. And the reason they were awarded that money was because they, the state and the federal government were trying to get people housed um, in an effort to not only decrease issues of the pandemic, but also because they recognized that homelessness and affordable housing were ongoing issues. So when we accepted the funding, I actually was not with the agency. I was working in child protective services at the time. And I was asked to interview for a position to direct these programs. And so there are three programs that I'm over. One is a homelessness prevention program, which is for people who are at risk of homelessness. So maybe they've been evicted, something of that nature, and they need help getting back on their feet. The second program is a rapid rehousing program, which is for people who are coming out of shelters or who are fleeing domestic violence and they are in need of stabilized housing. And then the third program is a short term emergency housing, which is a domestic violence shelter for people um, and their families if they have children or such with them who are actively fleeing domestic violence and need a safe place to stay immediately. And so the common thread with all three programs is what we're trying to do is stabilize people and offer them case management services and resources so that hopefully they do not find themselves in the same situation again. But if they do, they know what steps to take. Um, As a necessary part of that, we had to explore the different gaps in services that we see with our clients. And so we started things like toiletry programs, food programs, and then also we partner with a lot of agencies to do projects around getting books and such things to the children because they're going through transition as well. And as much as we think kids may not understand what's going on, even if they don't understand all the ins and outs, all the nuts and bolts, they understand that something is different that where they are used to going home and going to sleep at is no longer the same. And they don't, they may not know why, but they need some type of comfort as well. And so what we try to do in all three programs is make that transition as smooth as possible while still empowering people to get back on their feet and helping them be stabilized for each person. It's really different what services we offer. And it really starts with a conversation. Like, let's have a conversation about what happened, what got you here, what barriers exist to prevent you from getting housing now, and how can we address those barriers? Sometimes it's as simple as you need a security deposit. Okay, we can pay for that. Other times it's that maybe you have an extensive background check or criminal background check issues. Maybe you have prior evictions. And so at this point, it's kind of like, well, I don't I can't really apply for your standard apartments and get accepted. So in those situations, we typically prefer people to private landlords. And so I have a member of my staff that primarily works on landlord engagement. So shout out to Zoe Gillespie because she's a rock star. And so she engages with our landlords to make sure that we have created such partnerships with them and have such ongoing communication with them that if we call them and say, hey, do you have any vacancies? We want to refer somebody. The landlords will respond and tell her what places they have available that might be in that price range and we can help get that person or that family housed. You know what I what I was thinking when you were telling me this is that you see people at the absolute worst time in their lives, that they are vulnerable, they are probably, you know, just in pain emotionally, maybe even physically. Mm-hmm. And you treat these people as people. You right. treat them with grace and respect and acknowledge them as human beings. And I think that that takes a, a lot of strong character on your part, but also a lot of natural empathy and mm-hmm. for both you and your staff. Because like I I said in the beginning, you see the unseen. You help those that others will walk away from. Mm -hmm. Is there a, 
I, I'm in, what I'm curious to hear is, is there an emotional toll that it takes on you? Because I can't, I can't imagine seeing these as a, as a daily occurrence, seeing these, these people, these moms with their children coming in with nothing. How, how does that affect mm-hmm. you and your staff? So secondary trauma is very real. Um, and hearing people recount their trauma can sometimes force you to revisit your own. Um, so I think that the, the, the role that I can play with my staff is when I feel like somebody needs a day off saying, hey, go home. It's fine. We got it. Um, but that also means sometimes me saying, hey, I need to stay home. I need y'all to take yeah. care of it. And I learned while I was working in child welfare that you cannot be of any good or or of any service to anyone if you are not first good and of service to yourself. And I think that because I know the signs of burnout, I know what trauma stewardship looks like. I tried to make it a point to remind people that homelessness didn't start in one day. Domestic violence didn't start in one day. We can't end it in one day. We can work at it. We can work at educating, raising awareness and helping those who are going through it. But at a certain level, we also have to know when we need to to tap out and take a minute to recalibrate and get ourselves back on track so that we can do our best work. Was there an increase in the rate of homelessness and these situations because of the pandemic? Or did it just just make it more noticeable because of this extreme situation? I think it made it more noticeable. But then what I will tell you is there was also an affordable housing crisis. And that actually got worse in the pandemic, but not in the way that you would think. So the way it got worse was that the federal government had created a moratorium on evictions, which meant that landlords could not evict except for very specific reasons. The state of North Carolina also created a moratorium on evictions, and it was a slightly different than the federal one. So when those moratoriums lifted, landlords were literally lined up at the courthouse to evict people. And the reason was because you had people that either they lost their jobs during COVID, they stopped paying rent for one reason or another, they weren't communicating with the landlords. And so landlords had gone over a year not getting rent money. And for some landlords, they don't own the property, like they they own it in name, but they are also paying bills with the money that's accrued from the tenants. So where they have lost out on that money, they face the the probability of that ruining their credit or them losing those properties because they can't afford to just pay for it on their own. Um, So for a lot of them, you know, being a landlord is a business, is a job, and the the tenants are paying their salary in a way. So what we noticed was that um, a lot of landlords were trying to figure out what to do during the moratorium. And as soon as it was lifted, it was like evictions just, I mean... We're averaging at least 60 evictions a week and we have eviction court weekly and that's in one county and we cover five counties. Wow. That, mm-hmm. that blows my mind. That's a, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of displaced families. Yes. And then wow. a common reason that we're seeing for evictions is like one person got evicted and they went to go stay with a relative because the relative didn't want them on the street. And then that relative gets evicted for having somebody in the home that's not on the lease. So it kind of then becomes this trickle down of everybody kind of in the family one by one losing their housing. And then you also have some landlords that left landlord property management businesses altogether because after the pandemic, they just lost so much money that they couldn't justify continuing to stay in the business. And so oddly enough, 
the fact that the COVID money from the Department of Housing and Urban Development and from our state Department of Health and Human Services, they keep extending the deadlines for us to spend this COVID money because they too recognize that even though in theory the pandemic numbers are down, the pandemic is not over. And it will be a long projected period of time where the results and ramifications of the pandemic will be noticeable in society. So people that are immunocompromised see that there are lower numbers, but they're not necessarily going to report back into a public service job where they're around other people. And especially after mask mandates got lifted, they don't feel comfortable being there. So that's kind of the 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 world we're in is that you have to be aware of people's circumstances of what might prevent them from working. But then they also have to be aware of how that can be a hindrance for helping them get back on their feet. So it's it, you are constantly it sounds like you're constantly chasing your tail that once you <laughs> once you fix once you fix one thing, there's 10 more things right behind it to fix. That's what it that's what it sounds like to me because there's this domino effect that I never thought of. It never mm-hmm. dawned on me that it would have this rapid succession of issue after issue, issue after issue after starting with one thing. It like I said it never dawned on me. So it it must be daunting to try and fix this one family at a time. I think you just have to take it in bites, right? So so what's the expression like you you can't eat an elephant all in one bite. You have to like right. break it down into pieces. So that's kind of how I approach problem solving and social work is breaking it down into di- digestible pieces. And what can we do about each of these problems, but also having a good handle on the resources locally so that I know that I can't fix this problem, but I think I know who might be able to and kind of working from there. So it's a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of being aware of your community, but it's also the birdcage, right? So in college, my minor was in social and economic justice, and we talked a lot about the birdcage. And it's very similar to uh, now what Kimberly Crenshaw calls intersectionality. So it's about how all these different things are related and how all these different types of oppression are interrelated. And so therefore, all these different types of barriers are interrelated. And looking at where you can pull one, one piece apart And it's not going to tear apart the whole system, but you would be amazed at the other things that fall out of that. So if we say, oh, we have a problem with people experiencing homelessness, I challenge people to think about what they consider the problem to be. Is the problem the person experiencing homelessness or is the problem that there's no affordable housing for them to get into? If it's somebody that has an extensive criminal record, is the problem that the criminal justice system is broken and or rigged and or problematic depending on who you are and what your situation is, right? So there's all these little bits and pieces that we can pull apart. And there's all these laws and policies that require us to look closer at them because we have kind of been a society that has operated around relegating some people to the outskirts of society. And therefore, when we create laws or when we create programs, we don't always necessarily think about them. And I think to a degree, it's been purposeful, right? So it's noticeable with racial groups, but it's also noticeable with people who are, quote unquote, distasteful for you. So whatever distasteful might be. And I think that what we've done as a society is we've kept those people so far on the outskirts that now we see them on the outskirts and we forget that we put them there and we make it that they chose to be there because that takes the responsibility off of us. So what I commonly see is a lot of people talking about how there's a homeless problem. But these are people who are in positions to affect change and they don't realize that you doing this one little thing as the city council or you doing this one little thing as a nonprofit 
could make a world of difference to somebody. So there's no reason that in just over just under two years, we've housed over 100 people. But you're telling me there's not a way ongoing after COVID for that to continue to happen. That's a problem because the housing is available for most of those people. We just provided financial assistance. So maybe that looks like a conversation with landlords about the laws that say how much rent they can charge. Is that really, you know, our county recently did a study and the newspaper reported that even if you worked for the county, only I think 40 percent of people that work for the county could afford to live here in a two bedroom apartment or a two bedroom rental property. So to me, there's all these ways that you actually can get involved and make a difference. But you've decided that some people deserve protection and other people don't. And we have to be honest about that. That was decided historically. And look at how we're still engaging in that same practice now. Yeah, we're we're still fighting that same fight in different ways. It yes. it's I just I don't think it's as in your face as it was mm-hmm. at one point, but it is still very much there. And, and like is. you said, once you once you pull some of the layers back, you start to see things that mm-hmm. you're like, "Oh, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't this doesn't look mm-hmm. right. How did we get here?" Um mm-hmm. and it's interesting that one of the things you were ex- describing to me was you need to talk to people. You need to create community. You need to listen. So mm-hmm. I, as you were describing this, a, a light bulb went off in my in my head and I went, oh, this must have been what inspired you of or something along the lines to create this woman's words. Mm-hmm. And why I bring this up now is because what I have found through this process of interviewing women all over the world is that whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, women are the, we are the engine behind Mm -hmm. the forward movement. We are, Mm -hmm. we are the engine. We are the gas. We are the ones that are getting it done. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recently spoke to someone who was documenting uh, speeches that had mm-hmm. been done by women. And I think I introduced you to her. Yes. And what was remarkable to me was that there have been women that have been saying the same things over and over again through through history. And things weren't getting done because mm-hmm. it hadn't been memorialized. We didn't mm-hmm. have a reference to go back and learn from. Mm-hmm. And so she's taken it upon herself to document these speeches, mm-hmm. you're taking it one step further with this woman's words. So mm-hmm. I, I tell me, first of all, am I on the right track of how you were inspired to create this, this uh, program of this woman's words? So, yes. Um, but actually, it started more so as a platform for me to explore my own words and allowing mm-hmm. myself to be heard. And then once I felt like I don't know that I have anything else to say. The natural change was, so who else has something to say that I can elevate in this space? And then as I started to elevate them in my work, I noticed how big of an issue words were. So not just words and how you communicate with people, but words and how people understand and comprehend them. And so literacy kind of became this 
this issue for me that is part of that thread that you pull, right? So when we get all the way back to it, there are people who have been evicted because they could not read and didn't understand their lease. And so I'm like, oh, wait, well, and then it's so common. We don't think about this, but even with domestic violence, there are people who maybe don't read and understand English because they're from a different country, or maybe they read and understand, but not that well. So their partner has been the primary controller of the finances and everything else. And that partner is somehow abusive to them. And the whole reason that they are staying and are isolated is because they don't know how to get out. They don't know the language or have the words for what they're just what they're experiencing so that somebody can tell them you're not wrong. That's not okay. Here's how I can help you. And so I started to think about how literacy in and of itself is freedom. So there's kind of like this bubble over here where Sharia was exploring her voice. Right. And then there's this this second bubble where Sharia starts amplifying the voices of others and what they have to say and what they want to write about. And then there's like this third bubble where I'm like, but what about the people who haven't found their voices and their words yet? How do I help them? And for me, that looked like doing some programming um, virtually, of course, because COVID was going on around reading and literacy. But that also looked like starting a virtual reading series, because as I listen to people talk about why they had these issues with reading and literacy, a lot of times it was about a bad educational experience as a child. Something happened and either in school, it turned them off from school or they were told early on by family that education didn't matter. Something happened that triggered a disconnect for them with literacy. Maybe they had to stop school early to go to work, like different things like that, all types of reasons. And so that made me um, look at the current kids that I work with, because at the time I was also still at Child Protective Services and I had kids that were struggling in school simply because they didn't have anybody to help them with homework when they got home or because they just didn't see characters that looked like them and therefore they couldn't relate to the books. And so I said, you know, I can't really do anything about who's there when you get home, but I can do something about the types of books, right? So I, a very good friend of mine is a published author and owns a publishing company. And she was talking about the struggles they were having with promoting books and stuff during COVID because you had to be creative, right? All these platforms didn't necessarily exist to do things virtually yet. And so she's actually been on your podcast, Adrian Barr. Um, yes, and so Adrian, <laughs> Adrian and I were talking about this idea of a virtual reading series. And she was talking about like all the different ins and outs. And I said, you know, I think I could do that. I feel like I could do that. And so we started with uh, about nine or 10 co-sponsors from different agencies that I had partnered with through social services and whatever else that worked with kids. And we were just supposed to have a reading series for the month of February. That was 2021. And the reading series did not end until July of that year. So it went from February to July. And every week I had an author of color. Some of them were children, like youth authors. Some of them were adults and they would read their book. We had community members read books where like they were connected to the author and the author gave them permission to read the book. And then in response to that, I was like, so I had these authors come on and talk about these books. Okay, wonderful. But now how do I get the books to the kids? So the first step was we recorded most of the virtual reading series events. So then summer camps could ask for the link and they could play it for their kids or parents could pull it up on on YouTube or Facebook and play it for their kids at bedtime, whatever worked for them. 
But I still wanted kids to have the books. I wanted them to see these children of color. I wanted them to understand that they were seen, um, that their stories were important, and that there was somebody out there going through something similar to them. And so from there, I started talking to our local newspaper. I also talked to the local news network. So they did they did coverage on the virtual reading series. And I started getting emails from people. And they were just like, how do I get this? Like, how do I get these books? And so I'm like, okay. So I've been thinking about how to get them to them. I'm not sure what to do. So I start reaching out to the authors. The authors start donating their books to me. So I'm putting books in little free libraries in our county. Um, I put uh, together a book reading list for people to to purchase the books if they could afford to. And then I approached our local library and I was like, so I have this list of books and I want these books in our libraries. And I had to do a little bit of back and forth. And we had to have a whole lot of conversations about publishers and, and things like that and different rules and policies in the library. But fortunately, as of April 2022, I would say at least 30 of the books that I were that were on my list, either from the reading series or from other books that I knew about, had made it into, into our libraries onto the shelves. And so now my next step is working on a program with the library to get people library cards. We also have a mobile library that they can utilize that goes into their different neighborhoods. And so now we're talking about how to educate people about the resources so that if they can't afford the books and if they're not near a little free library, well, then you must be near a library. And here's what you got to do to go get the books. And so for me, it's kind of been this whole process of finding my voice and then helping others find theirs and, and meeting them where they are because finding their voice is going to look different for each person. And I think what has been the most unique part about this journey is that this woman's words was just a really cute Twitter handle that I came up with several years ago um, based around lyrics from a Maxwell song because I love Maxwell. <laughs> it was never supposed to be a website. It was ne I was never supposed to be a blog contributor for other people's blogs. I was never supposed to have you know a virtual reading series. That was never my plan. It was just a really cute Twitter name. And then the idea of words has just kind of transcended all of that and brought it all together. Um, and even in my day to day job, words, right, how we advocate, how we talk to people, but also how we empower them to use their words. I won't always be here. So do you know, do you know how to talk to your landlord now? Do you know how to document concerns that you have about your property before it gets to the point of an argument or an eviction? How can you use your words? And so words, they just they the idea of words just seems to follow me everywhere. And so this woman's words was a it was a stress reliever at one point too, like a way to just write. And I was very upset with things happening in the world as an Afro-Indigenous woman. It just was not America was not my favorite place at times. And I was just like, what is happening? And so it was a way for me to get that out. But then, like I said, at some point I was just like, OK, I don't know that I really have anything else to say, but I know some people who do. So let's let's hear from them now. What I find remarkable is that in the process of finding your own voice, you found an even greater purpose. And mm -hmm. what I think is so fascinating is, is you've said that words are freedom. Literacy is freedom. Mm -hmm. So you are teaching the youngest of society to have power and freedom with words and literacy. So then you don't have to see them in your everyday life. Exactly. In, in being in a situation where they might be um, homeless or in, uh, you know, in an, an abusive situation or don't mm -hmm. understand their lease. You're mm -hmm. teaching them early and you are changing their world. 
you're changing the trajectory of their life. So then you don't have to see them again. Right. And you know, that's, that's the most astounding thing. So the first time that the concept of literacy being freedom came to me was when thinking about why it was illegal for certain groups of people to know how to read in America. Slaves. Wait, what? To know- Hold on. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was again. illegal. It was illegal for certain groups of people to learn how to read in America. So historically, slaves were not permitted to know how to read. And then once there was more freedom, then issues about people of color generally were not, they were not supposed to know how to read. Like, but then what happened in order to vote, you had to pass a literacy test, right? So the the, the irony of it, right? So then, you know, take, let's take a gander at all of the different treaties that were entered into with American Indian tribes. And let's talk about how most of those tribes didn't speak speak English. English. Mm -hmm. And let's also talk about how then when the recognition process was created for federal or state recognition, you had to be able to read all the requirements. The interesting thing is for most federally recognized tribes, you have to provide proof that you have a language, that you have a tribal language. So here's the thing. You put American Indian children in boarding schools and told them they were not permitted to speak their tribal language. So you stripped them of their culture and then said, in order for us to recognize you as a citizen, you must now provide us with documentation of your culture that we took from you. So just this common thread, there's all these common threads in my life, right? So the common thread of being Afro-Indigenous and coming from people who several generations prior to me could not read, but understood the importance of reading and made sure that their children could read. People who could not vote but understood the importance of voting and made sure that their children and their grandchildren voted. So whenever I vote, I vote in memory of my ancestors who read or had read to them what was going on in the world, or they listened to the radio to understand. And even though they knew that they could not affect change by going to the ballot, they instilled in us that that was our responsibility to do so. And I think that the same way that that every, no political candidate is perfect, right? And I get that, but it's the act. It's the act of going to the polls because I come from people who could not. It's the act of making sure that I'm reading and that other people are reading because I come from generations of people who could not. It was, you could have been killed for reading. So my great-grandfather, who I re- referenced earlier, was teaching people to read, but he was also the first person of color to teach in a local elementary school in my county. And to me... This was like in the the 30s or 40s, right? He could have been killed just for doing this, right? I think that that's what drives so much of this too with the words for me is that women, as you said, are the ones that push history forward. And it's not that men aren't capable or don't do it in their own way, but it's something about the truth telling of women that makes people very, very uncomfortable. And so people praise my great grandfather for what he did now, not understanding that he could have died. He could have died for what he was doing. And so that then makes me wonder for the work that I do, am I willing to die for it? And for words and literacy? Yes, I am. So making sure that people have that freedom is very important because we think as a society that we are very free because we have Twitter and we have Facebook and we have the, the First Amendment and all these things. But it only takes watching one protest video to know that freedom of speech is very specific to specific people in specific times. It, it, it only takes one time of seeing somebody in eviction court or seeing somebody on the eviction docket that literally says, I just did not understand my lease and now they have nowhere to go. 
And what's wild to me is the number of people that have disabilities for reading or learning issues and they're not given the proper support when they enter into a lease. So the whole reason they're able to afford the housing is that they get disability because they can't understand certain words and we're not making the effort to help them understand said words. We're protect we're we're perpetuating their situation. Exactly. And and you explaining this to me is making me more aware of things that that I didn't always recognize as an issue or things that mm-hmm. I didn't recognize that were wrong because I I I grew up in in this environment. I grew mm-hmm. up in the United States where um that I happened to be born in, you know, in in the family that I was born into, in the area that I was born into. So mm-hmm. I am not exposed to this. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right. And the way that you are speaking, it just it ignites this this fire in me of okay, well what what can I do? I I mean what how can I help fix this? How can it, you know what what is it that the society needs in even in the most minute ways? Mm-hmm. What is it that those of us that are like, we're busy, this bothers us, but I want to help. I don't have a lot of time to help, but I want to do something. What's the something that we can do? So there's all kinds of somethings, right? And and you just got to be creative. So look at the agencies in your community that work with those impacting that are impacted by homelessness in any way, shape or form, or that are impacted by literacy issues or domestic violence. Reach out to them and ask them what they need. Maybe they need a check. Or maybe they need toilet paper to put in their shelter. It can be something like that. I am part of a service group. We are the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and I'm part of the North Carolina group. And after some of my fellow club women saw what I was doing with the virtual reading series, they went out and bought the books on the virtual um, on the summer reading list for the virtual reading series. And they left them in random parts of the city, like on benches and parks, in front of stores, wherever. And they left them there with a note that said, I'm not lost. I'm found. I belong to you. And that way they made sure that kids just walking around were getting those books. And chances are, if you're the child that sees this book with a little child of color on the cover and you pick it up, you're probably a child of color. Right. So making sure that they had it and now money is not an issue having a little free library. So if you're part of any type of organization that has the funds to do so, little free libraries range in prices, but the beautiful thing about them is you can get them, you can mount them in an area that's not close to a library and you can stock them with books. The idea is that people should take a book and leave a book, but where kids don't have the money to leave books and they're just taking books, you can normally apply for grants to stock those those little free libraries. I've also seen little free libraries turned into food pantries. And so people also leaving canned goods in them, especially if the little free library is somewhere where there's not a store nearby. Donating to schools, donating to um, domestic violence agencies, and even, you know, even just changing your frame of reference. So one of my pet peeves is when we see people asking for money on the side of the road. Some of the comments that you hear people say or make and the assertion of I'll buy you a meal, but I'm not going to give you money. Um, And so I was on Twitter a while back and somebody said that they won't give people on the side of the road money because they're probably just going to use it on drugs. And I said, 
So you could give money to people in the church or to a politician and they could use it on drugs. You're not responsible for how it's used. You're just responsible for the gift. And you, you know, that that person may have been collecting cash to get a hotel room for the night and you bought them a double cheeseburger and where are they going to sleep? They can't sleep in the cheeseburger wrapper. So what exactly did you help here? Um, and maybe they don't eat meat. We often act like people who are in need don't have the option to have options and choices. Maybe they don't eat meat. Why did you give them a hamburger? So do I roll down my window and give cash to everybody? No, I don't. But what I will say is I have to make sure that I'm actively thinking about people as people. And I charge other people to do that too. Because then when you start to see them as people and you continue to notice this gap in service, like I continue to see people in this area that don't have this. Well, maybe if I talk to a store near this area, they can talk to me about what's going on in this community and how I might be able to help. Just asking the question, why is this going on? Donating to agencies. So I know that there have been controversial issues about the Salvation Army, but in my county, the Salvation Army will provide uh, housing. Well, they'll provide clothing vouchers to people that are having housing issues. So let's say that you're experiencing homelessness or domestic violence and you're working with an agency. That agency or the school can write a letter of verification for you and they will give you a voucher at Salvation Army to get free clothes. So I tell people that in that way, you might want to consider where your donations are going. If you're donating a lot of kids clothes, you might want to consider donating to the Salvation Army, because if they're like our Salvation Army and they do these vouchers, then those clothes are being given to kids for free, as opposed to taking them to a thrift shop where somebody would have to pay to get them. So let's also look at how we create the barriers. If you are a landlord, look at the reasons that you're evicting people and how much you're charging them for rent based on the accommodations. Look at whether or not you're fixing the property for the purpose of making it habitable or for the purpose of making it comfortable, because that's two different things. And let's also look at what you're asking of your tenants. And if that was a member of your family and the, a landlord was asking that of them, would you feel like that was reasonable? Should they have to make four times the rent to have a safe place to sleep if they can pay your the rent every month? I mean, is that really necessary? So just kind of like these arbitrary thought processes is another small way that people can help. And then the last way that I would say is sharing the information. If you call an agency and find out about a need, call a friend, tell a friend about the need. We call people and tell them all kinds of crazy stuff. We can tell them when there's work to be done and what needs to be done. I, and just us having this conversation Hopefully, I get to tell lots of friends uh, all over the place because this isn't just North Carolina. This mm -hmm. isn't just Phoenix, Arizona. This isn't just Texas, California, Washington, Oregon. It's all of them. That's it's right. It's absolutely all of them. And the purpose of our conversation is just simply to change your mindset, mm -hmm. to you know, to to really look at at your fellow human being as human beings mm -hmm. that at one point might have been in the same spot that you are. They may mm -hmm. not have always been homeless. You never or, know. You, you never or know. consider how how far you are away from their spot, because for a whole lot of Americans, one missed paycheck. Yes, one missed paycheck. One missed paycheck, and then it's financial disaster. 
It is one really large medical bill. Look at these people as people mm-hmm. and have change your perspective, have some empathy and know that it is our responsibility if we have the way and the means to try and do something about it. And exactly. maybe the way and means is your time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not money. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't have money to give, but maybe mm-hmm. you have an hour or two to teach somebody how to read. Mm-hmm. And and so then agencies like uh, Sharia's won't be as inundated as they are now. Right. Well, and you know, it also, you're creating a support network for somebody so that if something were to happen, they have people to call. And one thing I try to talk to um, the staff about, especially as it pertains to our domestic violence shelter, is that when people leave here, I want them to have five people that they can call. If something bad happens, if something doesn't quite feel right, If they go back to the abuser and things start to happen again, I want there to be five people that they know that they can call. If if this if the doors of this agency close tomorrow, I want them to have five other people they can call to get help. And I think too often people underestimate the importance of being one of those five that can be called. And so be that your agency, you know, is working with people, but your outreach is a little shaky, especially because of COVID, like people weren't comfortable going out in the community, find creative ways. Local libraries are a great resource for all types of community issues. People go to the libraries to use the computers or whatnot. And in the process of needing help with navigating the computer, they tell the librarian all types of things that they have going on. So it would be beneficial for your information to be with the librarians so that they could then refer those people to you. And what have you done? You've just given them two people out of their five. They got a librarian and they got your agency that they can call in the event that times get hard. I, I am just, my my brain is spinning because this has been such an, an eye-opening conversation. Things that I've never considered. Things that have been clearly right in front of my face and I didn't even, I didn't even acknowledge, I didn't know. I did not know what the stories were behind that. And I never put together the power and freedom of words and literacy with the possibility of homelessness. Never put it mm-hmm. together, but it makes exact it, it makes exact sense as to why they would all be connected. Um, I cannot thank you enough for being here and and educating me and educating the audience and and really, there's there is a fire that has been lit within me to try and do something on on some level. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure what yet, but I will figure <laughs> something out. But I, I cannot express to you how appreciative I am of your time and of you spending your your knowledge and your passion with us and being a world changer. Thank you, Audrey. It was a pleasure. And I will tell you, there is a power in admitting that you do not know because that means that you're willing to learn. I, You know, I will say that I have been more willing to say I had no idea in the last two years as I have become educated from all of these amazing women that have been lending me their voices and their vulnerability and their passions and their spirits. And it, through that, I hope that I am opening up other minds and helping to change the world too. So um, I hope to be in the same caliber 
as you are as a world changer. So thank you for your work and your effort. Thank you. And I will tell you that you also lit a fire in me after you told me about the woman and the speech writing. I did listen to that podcast and I thought to myself, well, you know, Sharia, maybe you should look for the black women and the indigenous women who have spoken out about different things and find a way to tie their work into your website. If for nothing else to push people to learn more about them, even if it's just their name as a hyperlink. And so that's one of the updates coming to this woman's words is connecting us to the words of our foremothers who, um, maybe put perfectly into words the things that we're experiencing now, or maybe started the words and started the sentence that we can provide the remainder of the sentence and the punctuation for. So thank you. And well, it is definitely my pleasure because this is a community. And like I said, Indeed. women are the engine that moves history forward and Indeed. we're going to do it all together. So thank you again. And I'm going to give you uh, one last uh, opportunity to uh, give the audience words of encouragement or even contact information should they need it. Okay, so uh, my email address is writing is my activism. W r i t i n g i s a c t. I'm sorry. W r i t i n g i s m y a c t i v i s m at gmail.com. Uh, my website is www.thiswomanswords.co. So that's T-H-I-S-W-O-M-A-N-S-W-O-R-D-S dot C-O. Um, I'm in the process of revamping my website. So in a few weeks, it will look very different, but it will still be live. So you can see what's posted there now. Um, I encourage you to check out the section of the website called These Women's Words. And there is contact information for each of those writers on the website so that if you want to reach out to them or learn more about their writing, you can do so. And I think for words of encouragement, what I will say is writing is my activism. Words are my passion. So I challenge you to figure out what is your passion and how can you connect that to your activism? Activism doesn't have to look one way and it doesn't have to be only one thing. You will know what you are called to do. And when you put your feet in motion, when you put your voice in motion, when you move in a way that shows what your purpose and your passion are, you are being an activist and you are also showing others that it is okay for them to do the same. So I challenge you to be an activist. You know, I have nothing to add to that because that is perfect. That is perfect. Thank you 100% again for being here. And I want to thank the audience for being here and being so supportive of me and my show and helping me change the world one interview at a time. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate you spending a little bit of your time with me. Season five is a big deal. I had no idea and no expectation that we'd ever get here. And it wasn't easy. I've said it many times. I might be the one behind the mic, but I'm not doing this by myself. I'm doing this for all of us, with all of us, so we can change the world. Who knows where we'll go next? I can't wait. This has been an adventure of a lifetime. I'll see you again next week.
That's our show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and your unwavering support and your continued belief in this movement that has become much bigger than me, much bigger than just a podcast. It has become this forward momentum that we are all doing together. If you are ready or you know somebody that is, that is ready to tell your story and share your value with the world, please connect with me. You can reach me at audra at womeninthearena.net. I am so honored and thankful that you will share your story with me and I'll make sure that it is well taken care of. I will never stop thanking each and every one of you and I cannot wait to talk to you again next week as we share another woman's story and we celebrate her doing extraordinary things in plain sight. We'll see you next time. 